Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. As always, we're here every day. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT related topics where we answer audience submitted questions. So you really do drive the show. You drive the content about what we talk about in our first hour and how long we talk about it because equally as important as adding your questions into our Mukana interface. Uh, and you can find out how to get there by going to officehours.global. As important as actually putting your questions in is voting on those questions, because the things that get the most votes from the people who are watching the show is what we talk about in more depth and the longest, generally speaking. So today we're discussing what everyone is looking forward to at NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters show in Las Vegas. They've been going there for a hundred years plus. Many of us have been going for years. It is It has traditionally been the place where the equipment that we use in producing video and audio technology programs or just producing shows has been debuted and discussed. So we're looking forward to our coverage and we hope you are too. Today, uh, we're going to just drop back for our regular questions. All questions are on the table, so it's time for our first hour. Alex, what did, have we got today? Did you just say that you, you've been going to NAB for a hundred years? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no. That's a little. <laughs> that's a little beyond. I was like, I don't think so. I mean, NAB has been there for a hundred years. Plus, I went for probably <laughs> twenty of those years yeah, and had right. fun and made tremendous friendships. If you have a chance <laughs> to go to these things, they're really fun. First question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. And Andy asks, I am looking for a new interface for my Shure SM7B with more than enough gain to, to be directly attached, no cloud lifter, uh, that that does not break the bank. Suggestions? And let's start with Chris Tavato here. Chris? So on uh, the more inexpensive route, uh, the two that I, I've been kind of looking, going down the same route, and the two that I found are the, vo the Focusrite Bowcaster and the PreSonus 26C. Both of them are about 150, 150 bucks and have 70 dB of gain, which should be enough to drive that mic. Makes sense. Uh, David Paskin. Well, if, if $100 is not breaking the bank, then I, my answer is going to break the bank a little because I would suggest the Roadcaster Pro 2. Roadcaster Pro 1, you definitely needed the cloud lifter on the Roadcaster Pro 2. They actually suggest that if you use the cloud lifter, it's going to degrade the audio because there's plenty of gain built into the Roadcaster Pro 2. And John Preto. I've never find a Focusrite product that would drive the SM7B or RE20. Uh, my money's on the Yamaha AG6 Mark II. That guy's got enough gain. Okay, that gives you some options, Andy. Hope one of those fits into your profile well. Let's move on to the next question. Our next question is from John Foltz in Sellins Grove, Pennsylvania. And John asks, uh, I teach video production to college students, and I'm trying to figure out which wireless microphone kits would be best to use uh, for them to learn on. Are the road goes too consumerish? Uh, should I use higher-end stuff? Chris Fenwick, what are your opinions? Uh, I have a road go. Uh, it's totally consumerish, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, but here's the thing about teaching kids, and it's just my philosophy. Um, you, you don't necessarily need to teach them what this camera or this audio device or this microphone does. That stuff's going to totally change. Teach them the fundamentals. Teach them the concept of, oh, I could get audio from a remote location and and get it to my recorder without having to run a camera. In that regard, you can absolutely use a Rode Go, but just make sure they know that this is not professional gear. 
this is just the concept. You need to teach. When it comes to teaching, you need to teach concepts and not practicality. Courtney. I would say, yes, it is too consumerish. There are several problems with the road goes a lot of people because as a built-in microphone, a lot of people just clip it on the outside and that's not a, really a look <laughs> that you're going to go with professionally. Uh, so if you're going to teach, if it's a college class, you're going to get them used to working for like news organizations or dramatic uh, plays or things like that. You're going to want something like a, maybe a, a Sennheiser uh, GW112 or the G4A1 combo. These are body packs with a separate lavalier. Um, these are, you know, about the minimal uh, professional entry-level microphones that you can get the cheap, some of the cheapest that that perform like the electrosonics are similar to the electrosonics. They're not quite as good uh, because they're not um, uh, dual receiver. Uh, so you'll have some multipath issues perhaps. They do make a multipath receiver, I think. Uh, but uh, a separate body pack with a lavalier is what you want to go with. And uh, these, uh, at least this, the EW series uh, in Sennheiser is affordable enough to use and will get them used to using something like uh, similar to what would be used professionally. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with both uh, Chris and Courtney. <laughs> I get both. Uh, so so anyway, you probably are going to get more than one kit. You should have figure out what you're going to get and have more than one. I think having a Road Go or the DGI solution as one of the kits and the ENG as another kit uh, could make a lot of sense because it just they get to see two different ways of doing it. And the more different ways they have to interact with those, the more they're going to understand what's actually happening. So um, I think that the, the the Sennheiser, the entry level Sennheiser, is the one that most of us entered with. Um, and so uh, so we're you know I think that that's a pretty good starting point. But I do think that. You could have, uh, for the same price, you could have one or two or three sets of the Road Goes or DGIs. And again, I wouldn't necessarily even try to standardize for them. I'd make them learn which, which ones are better, which ones do different things, and how to, how to interact with them. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, ENG is electronic news gathering. That's one of the big uh, endeavors out that people use these wireless mics for. And the people who use those have to be, it, it has to work always. Chris Sabata, your thoughts? So I, I believe I've heard Alex say many times on this show that everyone uses the Sennheisers and no one changes the frequencies. And so I think that getting microphones that have frequencies and, and teaching the students how to how to change them and how to adjust them and um, learn when, you know, when they need to be on what frequencies, I think it would be super valuable. Good point. Guy Cochran. Yeah, it depends on how many that you need to get, how many students need to do projects simultaneously, because the cheaper ones will allow everybody to go out and use use the gear. But if it were me, I would at least start with the Sennheiser W series. I know Bill, we used uh, the Cinegear, we used these little guys, it's the AVX, which would be AVX similar to the road uh, as far as the frequency. But the nice thing about these is you can get them with the handheld, with the transmitter built in. So this is the transmitter built in, and then this is the receiver, and it's just an XLR, plugs right in. And then you can uh, swap out the battery. So on the road go, if your battery goes out, you're hosed. Uh, it's, you, you need it. This is the nice thing about having multiple transmitters because they're so cheap. You could, you could afford to have multiple transmitters. The other thing is, uh, I believe there's only eight channels. So if you can't perform an auto scan like you can with some of the better devices and somebody steps on your frequency, you're, just, you're out of luck. So electrosonics would be the, the way to go, but uh, you'd probably only be able to get one of those. So, um, and if you do go with the Sennheiser, I suggest getting the higher end uh, devices. There's, there's um, 
like on this is the 835 capsule on this one. There's a nine series that's better. And then on the mic, the Mickey two, MKE two would it, it's available as a set would be the better mic pack to get. I wouldn't waste my time on the ME two, which is the stock microphone that's included. Uh, in fact, you do get the Sennheiser EW one twelve. Even I'd swap that ME two out for something better like a Cost eleven DPA or just any anything besides that mic. John, I hope you're hearing that there's a lot of complexity here, but it can be made simpler. And I, I, I think one of the things I've taken from listening to this whole discussion is that you may want enough of the inexpensive things to allow all the kids to do something. And I'm saying kids, I don't know what level you're teaching on, but to have everybody have something available so they can learn the basics and those skills that we're talking about, but then have some of the better units for the kids who uh, turn out to really resonate with this to give them a chance to see more of the professional things because what the what the what Alex and others who are talking about how it works in the professional world it really does get more complex complex with frequency uh, conflicts and needing to have fully balanced and and um, diversity systems so that you have more than one link. Uh, in terms of RF back between the transmitter and the receiver, those things make sure that you do not lose signal in mission critical things. And they're really important for people working at a professional level to understand. Courtney, you had a last thought? Yeah, just tip. If you are going to go with the least, at least expensive 2.4 gigahertz type units like the DJI or the uh, uh, Road Goes, put the receiver, get an extension cable, a short, ex- you know, 10 foot extension cable and put the receiver up high above the heads of the talent because uh, that 2.4 gigahertz signal gets blocked by bodies. So if you're hiding the transmitter behind someone uh, and the receiver's in front of someone, you could have dropouts. So if you put it up high, there's less chance of that. Good thought. Let's move on to the next question. Next question is from J.B. Windle in Thailand. And J.B. asks, both of the AI tools, Descript and Simon Says, have been talked about here on Office Hours. Which of these two services would the panel recommend for someone who is wanting to improve their workflow for podcasts and basic video interviews? John Prado's going to start us out. John? Yeah, I'm not sure of your, your workflow. I would say try everything you can and see what works for your workflow. I use Mac Whisper for transcription right now. I found it to be the best, and it's free, completely free. Uh, but you just got to kick the tires of all these things and see which one works best for you. Alex? Yeah, I think that there are different workflows. Simon says, I think, is really when you have an integrated workflow that you're already working inside a Final Cut, inside of some of the an NLE, and you want to be able to send something out and ha- get the information and bring it back in. I know that Simon says does other things, but when I use it, that's what I'm kind of thinking through, is it's integrating with my NLE. I have to admit, our minds were kind of blown by Descript last week, and so uh, a bunch of us are experimenting with it. I think that um, if I was just doing podcasts and I wasn't doing a lot of post work on it, I'd probably look at Descript, and and I, I may even use that as a first pass for the podcast that I work on. Um, you know, just to let people just go in and cut the things out that they want to cut out. Then we're going to go in and do the rest of the edit. Um, and so I think that we're we're really looking at it pretty closely. So I would definitely play with both of them. But if you're looking for something to package, you know, repackage all of your content and to build it out and be able to edit it via text and so on and so forth, I would look very strongly at Descript. Yeah, I believe Descript is a little unique in that it allows you to edit your text and that will reflect and you can back do that to actually Simon edit says. the video. Oh, you will it do that? that I guess I haven't, yeah. I haven't yeah. ever used that, that circumstance. Okay, great. Um, 
they're fascinating tools. Boy, we've come a long way. All right, let's go to the next question. Uh, I just want to say one last thing there that Simon says is, I think, better integrated with the NLEs. That's what I was trying to say there. In Descript, the web tools are probably more developed. So it just depends on which one you're, which, which way you're trying to go. Uh, next question is from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. And Craig asks, Will the Blackmagic Ultra Studio 4K Mini that connects with a Thunderbolt 3 USB-C connector work with an adapter to the Thunderbolt 2 on a Mac Pro trash can? <laughs> Boy, test, test, test before you decide. I will say that I have a lot of circumstances where uh, something that would be passed by the later Thunderbolt standards, and they are always increasing the amount of connectivity and and data transfer of these things. Make sure it works in the field before you rely on that for something else. Let's move on to Guy Cochran for a second here. Guy? Yeah, it will not work. It's meant no, to it's use Thunderbolt 3. It will not. So, Alex, is that what, what you were going to say? What Guy said. <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> Let that one go. Yeah, that, I'm always really hesitant about using older technology yeah. because they change so We've much tried. of the code in there. Yeah, I have the adapters to show it, but it doesn't work. Doesn't work. Okay. Uh, Craig, you got an answer. Let's move on to the next question. Next, just, next question is from James Fossling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And James asks, I took a series of imprecise photos of a snowbank melting on my iPhone. How do I line images in Final Cut to create a video? Uh, Alex, give us a hand. So the easiest way to align images in almost any editor is to take your top layer and set it set its transfer mode instead of pass through or normal, set it to difference. And so what happens is, is that when there's no difference in the image, it's black. And when there's a lot of difference, it's white or some other colors. Uh, and so what you do is you use that and you try to get that frame to be as black as possible. So you just kind of move it over until, until you know, and you can align images. And this can be if you're aligning video, if you're aligning uh, stills, all of those things will work. And the and if you can get it to be a, a nearly fully black frame and then you set it back to normal, uh, those those images are going to be pretty well aligned. Uh, Chris Fenwick. Alex just told you the very precise part of it. I'm going to tell you the chainsaw portion of it. Um, your iPhone images are way larger than a video frame, unless you're doing 8K video and you shouldn't be. Um, so what you want to do, um, help me out, Bill, what's it called where you set the, uh, the frame to fit, fill, um, oh, yeah. fit, fill or none? So right. There's... In, the, in the inspector, which, by the way, is where you're going to find Alex's transfer mode up at the top, in the inspector, down toward the bottom, there's a thing called, um, I can't remember exactly, uh, but it, the choices are fit, fill, and none. You're going to want to set it to none. And what that means is it's going to take your big high-resolution iPhone photo, and it's going to blow it up way outside of your frame. You can then scale it down and start just, just get them all in there and get them roughly about the same size. You know, take the one, the one where you stood the uh, furthest back or the closest, whatever, that's going to probably be your key, and then just get them rough. Then you can start getting do the, the fine-tuning that Alex is talking about. But understanding fit, fill, and none is super important, and it's it, it's one of those um, it's one of those first things you need to learn about Final Cut when you're when you're just uh, getting into it. It's one of the most powerful. Um, it's not even a tool; it's really kind of a backbone of Final Cut, and I should probably know what it's called. Um, but well, uh, what Chris uh, is talking about is the metadata that comes in with the picture is going to tell the smart part of the software. How, what are the dimensions of this thing? And if you say fill, it's going to assume that you want to make 
blow up the picture enough to fill the entire frame. So no black bars on the top and bottom or no on the sides. That is fill. Fit is fit the whole frame in there, even if you have to leave those black bars. And none says just take the original thing. I don't care how huge it is. Bring that in one-to-one pixels, and then you can do your scaling yourself. So those are the three modes of import in Final Cut. And Chris is exactly right. Knowing that is pretty fundamental because if you do it at the beginning of your workflow, you never have to mess with it for the rest of your workflow. So it's one of those things you should set really up front. And it's called spatial conform. Thank you. Spatial conform is... Understanding spatial conform in Final Cut is key to solving a whole bunch of headaches. Learn it. That just saves you tons of time later if you bring them in right in the first place. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. And Samuel asks, uh, do you update your non-smart devices with the latest firmware if they work perfectly fine and do not have any issues? Courtney, help us out. I'm trying to figure out what a non-smart device is that has firmware in it, but uh, yeah, uh, I guess device. something that doesn't update itself automatically, maybe. Um, I usually go ahead and do the update, but I'll look at the change log. When they publish a new version of the firmware, I'll look at the change log to see what they fixed, because just because it works fine for me now doesn't mean I might try and do something with it in the future that that there was a giant bug in the version that I had that I never encountered before that they fixed in updated uh, versions. And sometimes uh, uh, version updates are incremental, and if you know you try and go from version 1 to version 2.6, it may not work very well because there was something in the middle that it needed if there were incremental updates. So I usually try and update them if I know I'm going to be doing something different with the device that I'm using right now. Alex. Yeah, I, I I think it's that I do it occasionally. Like I, it's usually I I would I would love to say that I do it all the time and uh, you know, but I I mostly do it. I remember that oh, it might have something new, and and oftentimes it's just that it might have some new features. I am looking for new features usually uh, as far as as far as bugs. But I have to admit that many things that I have don't get updated for years. If they're if they're working, I have a tendency not to move them. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. Uh, next question is from Brett Ballou in Appleton, Wisconsin, and Brett asks: um, Now, uh, now that Amazon Code Whisper is finally available with a free tier for everyone, no longer just AWS customers, will it have a fighting chance against GitHub Copilot as a companion for coding in Python, Java, JS, C, SQL, and other popular languages? John Preto, what say you? Let the races begin. Yes, everybody's going to get in this game and, and AI is going everywhere. I'm going to go play with this and I'll let you know. But IBM, Oracle, you know, Microsoft's already got uh, open API integrated in. So you're going to see lots of offerings from all of the big players. So we'll see. I find that so fascinating that computers are so smart and AI and in the cloud is so powerful that it actually can write code uh, in circumstances, sometimes off a of voice prompt. That just seems like we're living in the future now, but it's very cool. So keep your eyes on it and hopefully you'll find a tool that can do exactly what you want the right way. Let's move to the next question. Next question is from uh, Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. And Henry asks, What's a reasonably priced headborn mic for a local band singer? Not enough budget for a D- DPA, unfortunately. 
Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a handful of them. We really like, obviously, the, the DPAs, but the DPAs are not necessarily the best for concerts anyway. They're really designed for people who are speaking for the most part. Um, the one that a lot of, a lot of singers use is made by, um, of all things, Crown makes one that is kind of well-known. I think Garth Brooks made it popular and, and it's got, and so it's a really popular one. It's a little less than the DPA, but it's still expensive. But that is the one that we see as the most popular one for many, many artists uh, at a much more affordable rate you can look at things like a sure sm35 uh, it's a it's a headset it's still pretty big and bulky but it but it will hit there the the really small ones like like a sure mx153 is really small but again more for speakers um, i don't think that you're, you're not looking for a small typically you're not going to look for a really really small device um, when you're trying to sing for most things um, because they're going to pay a lot of money if you're going to get a high quality head for it so so th those would be things i would think about Keithley is modeling the Crown CM311A, I believe, for us. So uh, I don't know if anybody can switch in the back end to him, but it's a lovely view. David Paskin. I, I was so happy I to was, have one right here. Yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say Jeff is, is modeling it. So um, the, I think before Garth made it popular, it was uh, we used to call it a Madonna mic um, because she, she used it. <clears throat> and uh, so I've used the Shure one when I've uh, been performing. Um, which is kind of the cheaper version, I think, of the crown. Um, and it's what I love about it is that it's um, it, it because it's bulky, it's it's solid, like it stays in place. It doesn't really go anywhere. When I have been wanting something a little more discreet, I've gone for the um, oh goodness gracious, I just the Countryman um, uh, version H six, yeah, which uh, or a a knockoff thereof because countrymen tends to be very um, expensive. And those are really, really nice, but because they're so tiny, they're not quite as uh, sturdy on the face, I found. Jeff Keithley. I think so much depends. When you're talking audio, having done it many, many years myself uh, from when this was made, <laughs> so it's been around a while. Uh, the difference is the diaphragm size, as you notice here, and this is the reason why they were used in, in live environments is because you could get it right in front of your mouth. It had a huge diaphragm compared to other headsets that, well, where there were just there weren't a lot of good ones out at the time. Uh, it sounds fantastic, but the off-axis rejection is just amazing. Um, I would never put a headset practically on any singer right now unless they were in a Broadway stage situation. That would be the only reason. And then you're talking a much better microphone than uh, than anything low end in like under a thousand dollars. And since we talk about theory here a lot, the reason one of the reasons that these are so effective is that it puts the microphone capsule literally half an inch from your mouth. And we talk about the inverse square principle a lot. If you're looking to achieve gain before feedback in a live performance circumstance and just want high fidelity, that closeness of the microphone just pays huge benefits. Every doubling of or, or cutting in half of the distance between the mic capsule and your mouth gives you four times more um, signal to noise ratio positivity and it's just a really good thing let's move on to the next question next question is from guy cochran in seattle washington and guy asks how many modems are in the live view um i think it's variable isn't it guy do you uh, do you know that unit you asked the question or well, either yeah well guys up front let's then alex and jeff will both weigh in. i was guy? hoping jeff keithley would take it because i think he has one but uh here i just looked it up um it looks like there is Eight internal, two external, 
but then you can do two Wi-Fi and then two Ethernet. So there's 14 total. And wow. is this what we're using, Alex, at the NAB convention? It's sitting right on the other side of this door. <laughs> I can't quite, I can't quite go grab it, but I think Jeff's got one there. Yeah, Keithley's got some. Keithley, let's go to you and tell us what you're holding up. This is one of my LU800s, and you can see the modems are here. And so uh, you pull off this panels, and that's where all the SIMs are loaded. I'm sorry, the SIMs themselves, but the actual modems are inside the unit, so they're they're embedded. Uh, I wish I could grab real quick my LU600, I think it was, that has uh, a removable part, and the modems are in little USB-type carriers. Uh, and then the SIMs are just exchanged out in those carriers. But uh, the newest models, LU800, LU300, the new LU300s, and those are built into the modems. It's, so it's hardware. It's not just individual little modems that are bonded together inside the machine itself. Uh, but yeah, it depends on, on your contract too. Some of them might only have four. Some of them might have six. Some have eight. Some may have 5G. Some may not. Uh, the latest... Uh, models have 5G modem capabilities, which are great if you are in town uh, and have a 5G system there. If not, it tanks your service. So there's reasons to have four or four, either 4G LTE or to have 5G too. Uh, Alex, do they still do they still make the extender, Jeff? Yes. Do they, they and then they still use that because we what we used to use. I mean, so I I used to have two six hundreds, which are considerably larger than the eight hundred. When the eight hundred showed up this week that we're using that live use lending us, I I was like, this thing is so small. Are we sure we got the right one? And uh, so it's like half the size. Um, but the uh, yeah, I think as we could add another eight modems with the extender, if I remember correctly. So you could end up. So you have an extender. It's like it looks like a little. It's like this little box or a little round thing that you can put up. And so what we can do is run an Ethernet from it to another part of the a building, oftentimes out the building. And uh, and then we'd have uh, – it would bond all of those that cellular together. So it, it would do those. And then you could add the Ethernet. One of the things we're looking at for some of our future projects that, that we may use a live view for is the live view and then putting a Starlink on. Have you played with that at all, Jeff, to use Starlink as an Ethernet source? <laughs> yeah, last year, uh, the Pikes Peak uh, race uh, that we worked with on I know on, that was the first time out that we used it in production, and it saved our bacon for a couple of days while yeah. we were getting the microwave links up. So absolutely, yes, uh, we use Starlink all the time. Well, actually, no, the first one was John's uh, rocket launch. That was... That was our uh, our Hail Mary that we ran in with two. Uh, so we right. had one that was hard lined in and another that was uh, Wi-Fi sucked in over the Wi-Fi. Right. And so, yeah, it, it definitely works. It, there is there is more latency, of course, in Starlink. Uh, yep. But it, as long as you just up your buffer, so that's yep. the key is, uh, you know, you put your buffer up so that you're running your bonding at, say, six, eight seconds, mm -hmm. maybe in 10. Uh, it's It works flawlessly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Next, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Next question. <laughs> Next question is Douglas Carmichael asking, uh, what niche do you see the Yamaha DM3 having in the low-end digital mixer market versus the Allen & Heath SQ series? Courtney, start us off here. Well, I think the Allen & Heath uh, SQ5, I think, is like double the number of inputs of, of, that you're comparing it to that DM3. Uh, so it's much bigger. It's much heavier. It has a... Alan Heath has a built-in power supply as AC only, I think. 
Uh, so I think the niche market that the DM3 is going to have is for production mixers or people have to work in the field off a of DC, perhaps. It's more portable, will fit into a rack a lot easier, uh, or a case, a portable case a lot easier uh, to, uh, you know, go out on the set, open up the case, and you're ready to go uh, with internal batteries of some sort, 24 volts, unfortunately, for the uh, Yamaha. I'm surprised they didn't go 12, but hey, just my little pet peeve. So uh, that's that's the niche that I think the Yamaha can achieve over the Allen and Heath. It's more portability and uh, easier use in the field, I think. Alex? Yeah, and I think from a price perspective, it's probably the QU16 um, from uh, from um, Allen Heath is probably what they're competing with from a price uh, standard there. And uh, and in that case, I think that the Yamaha probably has a lot more feature, a much deeper feature set for the same, for a, a price that's still a little lower than that QU16. Um, it doesn't, the SQ series is twice as much money. So it, I think part of the way it competes is it's a lot less expensive. Uh, it's also a pretty simple mixer. I think for, um, for field recording, uh, you know, for some basic, um, uh, re, you know, TV show kind of things, as well as uh, small concerts, I think that the, uh, the, the, this might look, uh, the DM5 looks pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, for the kind of stuff we do, it probably isn't going to be at the solve because it doesn't have auto mixing. Uh, next. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jeff Keithley. Jeff. All right. I'm going to be that guy. Uh, it's because it says Yamaha. <laughs> there will be people that buy it because it says Yamaha, and that has a a long line of uh, customer satisfaction. Let me put it that way. And, um, and and I and I just will say it's also an interface thing too, because the Yamaha has a specific interface. Um, I used to own a couple Allen workflows. Yes, and the workflow of the Allen Heath just made made me crazy. There so are certain people that do not like the way Allen and Heath has sounded since it began. When it comes down to audio guys like that, you know, that are mixing bands and stuff, they just won't touch an Allen Heath. You can put every feature you want into it. They just won't touch it just because it is an Allen Heath. It has a British sound, a British EQ. They don't like it. Yamaha has a very sound, very unique sound. I, I would say not unique, unique, but unique enough that you know what it's going to sound like every time. Allen and Heath, not so much. And Chris Fanwick. Yeah, the last thing I'd say about any audio device, and I never thought about this until COVID and, and uh, office hours, um, I used to always say that outputs on mixers are almost as important as inputs, you know, the number of outputs. And now I would say that the number of USB in and outs are also super important. This thing has like, uh, I think it has 18 in, uh, USB in and outs, um, which are very, very useful when you're interfacing with a computer. So you definitely want to think about that. Douglas, hopefully you got the answers you're looking for here. Let's go on to the next question. Oh, wait a second. Before we do that, let me just remind you, because I'm negligent in doing this, to not forget about voting on our questions. You do determine how much time we spend on things and, and the priority we give them by your votes. So your votes are always very important. Please participate. Help us keep the show focused on what you want us to talk about. All right. Now let's go to the next question. And a reminder, you can, keep, of course, ask questions all the way through the first and the second hour. So go ahead and throw those questions in. Uh, Paul Wallace asks, uh, any thoughts on this new voiceover product? This is the Sentrance. It features dual mic preamps, dual USB interfaces, and a quote-unquote 
sophisticated routing scheme for VO yeah. professionals. There's a lot of talk about this. I'm seeing it on all the boards for VO. George Whittem, who has been on the panel here for us at Office Hours, is one of the driving forces behind this. He's doing it specifically for the kinds of things that VO performers, voice talent, voiceover people, need as they travel and things like that. It looks like it has a lot of great features. Uh, Centrance has been in this business for a long time. They're not at the super high end or the super low end. They're kind of a, a mid-range product generally. That, at least that's my feeling about them. I think they've engineered a lot of stuff into this. I was a little disappointed to see the price point is up in the $650 range. So it's probably not a casual thing for someone starting out. But if you're in the industry and you're making your living with this, it looks like it has a tremendous feature representation specifically for people who want to do this kind of work. That's VO recording on the road and it's purpose built for doing that. And it'll probably help with podcasts and things like that too. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that it, it looks pretty impressive. They've added, they put an awful lot into uh, a single little piece of, of equipment. I will say that when you get into that price point, I would start thinking if I spent a little bit more, I'd have a mix pre three. <laughs> so, 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 you know, like at, at $350, there, there would be no choice whatsoever. I mean, like this would be a great device at the price point that they're putting it at. They're getting close to some of the F series with Zoom, the the Mix Pre, the, there's a lot of other things that do this really, really well. And so I think that they really have to sell the form factor. And, um, you know, so I think people who are interested in the form factor will be interested in it. If you're looking for pure quality and you're really doing high-end voiceovers, I think that there's a lot of other things in that price point that would be competitive. I agree with that 100%, although I will say that one of the things that George spent a lot of time doing was paying attention to the kinds of things that would be easy for someone who doesn't do audio full-time. Mixpres are fabulous tools. The routing and the buttons and the rest of that can be a little complex. I feel mm -hmm. like it's a little bit like my universal audio Again, yeah, thing. The, yeah. the, I, think, I think if you're talking about the form factor of someone who just wants to turn the dials and make it work, I think that that makes sense. Again, it's just that you know, once you get into that price point, though, there's a lot of things that if you are willing to dig into the complexity a little bit, uh, you may get a higher performance. Yeah, I, I think I agree 100% with that. But it looks interesting. I'm, I'm wishing yeah. George well, and I hope looks this great. thing does really great. I mean, Centrance is I, my first interface for a, for an XLR to USB was Centrance, and I used it. I had it in my backpack for years. So they you know they have definitely been doing this since day one, and so I think it's a great it's a great partner um, to to build this out. And I do think that. For VO professionals, it's got, it does have all the dial, the bells and whistles to do that. My, you know, my concern is always, you know, what is the preamp like, and you know, how does it work, and and you know, that's those are the kind of things that I'd have to I'd have to see a little bit more of. But it, it is a pretty impressive piece of hardware. And I will say it's not a Kickstarter kind of thing normally because Centrance is a solid company. They've been there for a long time, but they are doing a limited run of these. And I understand from having investigated that it, it, there's a potential this would sell out. And if it does do that, they're they're not completely sure they'll do another run. It's kind of a bespoke product for that niche market. So let's go to the next question. Next question is from San Samuel Nordvik in Norway. And Samuel asks, what is it that attracts the live streaming and banana and, and, and camera niche to bananas? In addition to being our length unit, uh, vMix has a banana as an official mascot. Gerald Undone did an in-depth review on the perfect banana. He has a link to it. David Paskin, educate us on fruit as standard. 
Well, it's not just fruit. It's it's bananas specifically because of the potassium. You know, when you work in video uh, engineering and event producing, the, the your your muscles, your nerves require the um, that, that that extra level of potassium. And the other issue that we're really dealing with here is that um, if you have too much potassium in your body, it can cause hyperkalemia. I don't know what that is, but Wikipedia has it on their page and it doesn't sound good. So just enough bananas, really being able to measure your bananas is really critically important in our line of work. I just want to point out to the, to the producers, when you, when, you, when you don't fill our basket full of lots and lots of questions, these are the kind of questions and answers we're going to dig into. I'm just, just letting you know. I'm just, it's, it's just we'll a talk warning. about bananas. For those yeah. of you who have been around the internet a long time, you know that banana for scale has been a meme thing in it forever. I actually did a little research on this one, and apparently this is the original picture that started the banana for scale meme. It was from back in 2004 or something like that. And a guy was, or somebody, I think maybe a woman, was selling a TV and she didn't have a measure. And she said, I taped a banana to the TV so that you can figure out. Somebody figured out it was a 19 inch portable TV from that. And then people started laughing and it took off. And there is a whole website now about banana for scale and the early pictures of people using bananas for scale. There is a whole uh, thing about the banana for scale unit. And, oh, my gosh, this is just so much fun as a place to go down. So it's been around the Internet for a long time. And uh, I think we're just carrying on a fine tradition. Uh, Alex Lindsay, what do you want to say about banana for scale? I was going to try to say we even uh, got to a point where we uh, uh, we were shooting. Uh, there was a, a live stream we were working on called The Holiday Hole. It was for Cards Against Humanity in, in, in uh, uh, it's about five or six years ago. And we literally threw a banana. We were digging a hole for no reason in the middle of Illinois. And we literally threw a a banana down into the hole and then we had a we had a drone shot where we started on the on the banana and then pulled away so you could see you know banana a banana for scale banana for scale shot uh, it is a yeah obviously in reddit it's a it's it's pretty popular <laughs> i'd say that again courtney gooden well you know in comparison to all the fruits that are used for uh, scalar measurement i think the banana has the most appeal with a rim shot. Oh my gosh, that 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 may mark a high water mark in uh in our answers here. By the way, somebody said that uh banana for scale was a popular at it eventually morphed into guitar for temperature because this person's in Phoenix and their pool is frozen. And so they put their guitar out on the pool so you can see that the temperature is low enough to freeze a swimming pool in Arizona. It's just crazy people. Let's go on to the next question. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question is uh, from Guy Cochran, and uh, he asks, what, what's new with NDI? Jeff Keatley, take us into this. Deep breath, deep breath, not much. Uh, it, it, this, this last uh, announcement was more about partnerships and uh, further developments in the SDK, the advanced SDK. Uh, there, there's nothing technology-wise technology, technology wise that's really uh, big changes. It, it's more just about, uh, hey, look at all these other people that are using it. Uh, it was pretty a big, pretty big thing to throw in Ross uh, in there, even though they've been using NDI for years with expression or been capable with it. Uh, but yeah, it's just not a whole lot of big steps yet 
but there are some coming, but just not yet. Courtney, you had something to add? Oh, not on NDI, no. Sorry, oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's the, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. David Paskin has something to add, and so does Chris Sabato. So Chris Sabato, take it away. The most tangible change that they've made is that they are now redirecting NDI.TV to NDI.video, which is blocked by my institution, so I can't even get any <laughs> any updates. I'm not sure why they made that change to from .TV to .video, but... Oh, no. I'm, wow. I'm blocked. <laughs> David Marketing Paskin. branding at its best. Yeah, <laughs> David. Um, I, I, mine is more of a question. Actually, there's a significant lack of parity between the features that NDI Tools offers between PC and Mac, and I'm wondering if they've talked at all about getting the Mac tools up to PC level. Jeff Keithley, you have a huge grin on your face. Well. Uh, without being, you know, I'll step on eggshells a little bit. I'm not going to be, uh, let's just say a lot more people use PCs in video production, believe it or not. And so thus go to the numbers where they are. The TriCaster is a PC behind the scenes, uh, that is from NewTek who developed India to start with before they spun it off to its own company with VizRT group. Uh, but the reason for that is because it was developed for a PC. Macs have a different ecosystem. They have a different way of doing things and they prevent a lot of things that can be done on a PC. They prevent it from being able to be done on the Mac. So if you're looking for tools on the Mac, always check out Sienna. Sienna is basically building their stuff on a Mac first or, or really it's on Ubuntu. So it's on a Linux kernel first and then it's ported over to Mac because that's a little similar, more similar and then also PC too. But if you're looking for Mac tools, then look at Sienna because that has the largest amount of it. But be prepared to pay because they are a business and they're trying to stay alive. Uh, but yeah, the biggest thing is it's numbers. There's way more PCs out there being used in video production than Macs. Alex. In live live video production specifically, I'm not talking about editing. Alex, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, there's uh, Jeff's right in for for a, a, there's a layer of video production that's using VMix and TriCaster and everything else that is very PC heavy um, in that area. And so there's you know so that that in that layer there's a lot of um, uh, it's really like 90% PC because they're using, it's usually vMix or TriCasters um, to do that or OBS. And OBS doesn't run that well on a Mac in my, in my opinion. And then obviously those are there. And so, um, so I, think that, I think that that is correct. I do think that it's, for NDI, it's creating some openings because we're starting to see pickup with other things. So the, on, in, in my world, there's more and more talk about what what support people want to put around 2110 and even Dante AV. Uh, I believe that AJA just released new products for Dante AV yesterday. Um, and so, so I think that, and those cracks are really opening up because Mac users don't, you know, don't find the same support in NDI. So it's, it's a, you know, with any of these things and with, with the, the performance of the M1s now, uh, I think that than it is right now because NDI has a really has you know a huge percentage of the market at the moment but it could get splintered not so much it would lose the market but it would get much more splintered and much more complex if uh, uh, if the Mac isn't supported more effectively in the near future Courtney I'm sorry that's uh, no we're going on to the next question my apologies uh, next question next question is from Todd Rains in Allen Texas and Todd asks 
I am needing some advice and learning on DRM, uh, digital rights management. Can Vimeo allow customers to download a recorded video from my account, but not allow them to copy, move, or share it? Alex. That's heavy DRM. (laughs) So just so you know, like being able to do that, uh, I don't think Vimeo can do that necessarily. Um, You can definitely get that kind of DRM with... um, uh, with Apple TV and with some of the other devices, but you're not, you know, and even now Chrome will protect it. So if you try to record it, do a screen record, it'll go black. Uh, but the reality is it's almost impossible to protect your your content once someone downloads it, even when they, you leave it up there. I can go, uh, you know, not that I would ever do this, but I could if I wanted to uh, do an HDMI out of my uh, out of my laptop into a cheap HDMI to SDI converter, push it into a into a little recorder, and then I'm done. <laughs> like you know, so so and and that's with everything that's DRM'd out there right now. So I, you know, I think that it's really the reason I bring that up is that it is a uh, kind of I would be, I, I'll just say that trying to protect your video is a bit of a fool's errand. Like just trying to hang on to it, trying to hang on to the DRM. There's so many ways around it. Um, you know, you can make it inconvenient at mass. If you're doing something sp- special, I think that what you want to do is build a relationship with your, you want to look at your video as your, your kind of your loss leader, your thing that people are going to get out there and, and watch, and then you're going to attract them to do that. But you really want to build the value around your community and around people who care about what you do and are willing to pay to make sure that you keep doing it. Um, but I think that, and that's the way, I, again, I've been doing that model for almost 25 years now, which is that I push the video out. I don't try to protect the videos. There are a lot of people who paid for my products over the last 25 years, mostly just to support the cause. Um, And so, and the the fact that they got copied, there was just, it it wasn't worth, I decided it wasn't worth the effort. So unless you're, it's really expensive and painful to do DRM and then people will just get around it anyway. Courtney. Yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, Friends don't let friends use DRM. It's uh, if you want uh, your customers to hate you for the rest of your life, DRM all of your content. Because like Alex said, it's too easy to get around. Anything that you can view, you can copy. So if your eyes can see it, you can point a camera at it and copy it. Uh, So uh, it has to be, you know, you won't have a perfect copy, perhaps, but enough of a copy to share with people. And besides, if you're wanting to post a video for people to see on Vimeo, uh, why protect it? The object is to share it and to get notoriety. If you want to protect it against other people making money off of it, uh, just copyright, uh, register the copyright on it. And then if somebody is out there stealing your your, uh, property and publishing it, making a profit on it, you can sue them if you've registered the copyright and they have to pay for your lawyers as well. So register it if you're afraid of copying, but I wouldn't DRM it at all. It's too, it's too cumbersome and uh, impossible to enforce. Alex, you want to follow up? Yeah, you can always brand it too. So just just do a little bit of a some kind of thumbnail in the corner, just a bug that you can brand it, what you're doing. There are software out there that will customize it. So if someone downloads it, I don't think, I don't know if Vimeo does this or not. It puts their username like branded into the video. And unless they're sophisticated, they'll have a hard time taking that out. So if they copy it around, at least you know where it came from. So those are things you can do. But it, again, the level, as Courtney pointed out, the level of annoyance to your users that are buying it um, oftentimes outweighs any benefit you're going to get from a DRM. 
Yeah, and, and do understand the metadata process. What Alex was just talking about triggered me to remember that I put my name in my camera, and I was shocked uh, some months, actually almost a year later, when a video I had posted to YouTube had buried NIT's metadata that I had shot it. My name was in there because that metadata had been passed along. So don't ignore putting your ID stuff in just pieces of your production equipment so that your work gets branded that way in the background via metadata. Let's move on to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks, many bands offer sound check access as a perk to v VIPs attending a concert. How do you manage the invited audience so that they don't interfere with the work that needs to be done? Well, I think in most VIP circumstances, you want to treat them really well. So I would have a little area with snacks and stuff like that, maybe even a minder as, a, you know, a particularly attractive human being that is there to say, what can I get you? How can I help you? You're our special people. And if you put them in an area and say, this is where you get these special perks, they will often stay there. Alex, do you have strategies? Uh, yeah, I mean, when... When we've seen this happen, generally you're just you're just good to be. You know, you're at a sound check. You're sitting in the, in some chairs that might be in the in the pit. You don't get to talk. <laughs> they actually tell you not to. Don't interact with the band. You know, so so you're just you're sitting there uh, watching the soundtrack. It's awesome, by the way. Uh, I I don't I've never had to pay for it because I'm usually working. If I'm at a concert, I'm working the concert, so I get to see sound checks all the time, and they're oftentimes just much more fun <laughs> than than. Uh, uh, that sometimes they're very cursatory. A band comes out and checks a couple things, but some bands really get into it, and some bands just have a lot of fun. Like that's where they actually just kind of uh, you know they'll play with ideas, they'll play with something, they'll play covers that they didn't that they're not going to play in the show. They'll they'll do all kinds of things. So it just depends on the band. I mean, some bands come out and they check their guitars, they check the mics, um, they play a song, and then they or a couple half songs, and then they walk off. Uh, but some bands will play the entire set. Some bands will play, you know, extra stuff just to see how things are going. Uh, some the, some have fun. So it's it is a, it is fun when they do it. But usually there's no interaction with the band. I've seen a couple bands like ask people how they're doing. Like, what do you think? How how is it working? It adds a lot of value. I just don't see them do it very often. They're usually in the zone and trying to do their thing. Courtney. I don't know. I've seen a lot of sound checks that would scare most people off, you know, when they're sitting there. <laughs> Tuning the drum kit. Okay, snare. <laughs> well, but that usually happens before. Okay, the, that happens before the band comes out. They, they do all. Or that. if they're tuning the hall with check, using check 120 one, dB one. pulses of pink noise, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that yeah. tends to drive everybody out of the room pretty much. Uh, so don't serve them alcohol so that they and you know tell them that they can't shout out you know songs they want to hear. Play Freebird. No, that's not 200, good. 200 up, 200 up. Check one, check one. 800 down, check, check, check. Ah, uh, they're fun or horrible, depending on the circumstance. Let's go on to the next question. Next question is from uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Austin got the CMAs this year with uh, record ratings. Uh, do you think that they'll get them next year, uh, the end of the Nashville run um, of these awards? Uh, Alex Lindsay. You know, a lot of that'll depend mostly on the venue. The ratings, you know, maybe will make a difference, but the thing that'll make the most difference is how 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 easy was it to do do it there? Uh, was it easy to get their gear in? Was it easy to work with labor? Was it easy to work with the venue? Uh, those kinds of things make a huge difference in what people do the next year. And so, if if Austin did that effectively, the quality of the show they can do anywhere. 
Like, so, so like, like how it looked on the show, that's the designers and that's what they put together and they can do it in LA or Nashville or, you know, Greenland. Um, but, but what was the expense um, profile? What was the, the ease of, of, of labor, ease of restrictions, ease of permits, all those things are the things that usually make a difference and potentially uh, any kind of uh, tax incentives that might be related to production is also a thing that can draw people in and out. Courtney, a quick thought. Yeah, since Austin is a lot of times considered the live music capital of the world, uh, it's a good place to have it. So they they have the reputation. Nashville's reputation is a little bit fading. I don't know where the Country Music Association is actually located, whether they're how, you know, if their corporate headquarters are in Nashville or not. But uh, Austin may be an up and coming uh, place for them to relocate to. Alex? And I have no idea what happened here, but I can tell you that usually when someone moves after a long period of time, the venue or the or the city pulled something. Like they went, you know, we now need this. We need you to do this. And they they added a bunch of requirements and they said, hey, that doesn't work for us. And the city said, well, we don't care. And they said, okay, we're leaving. <laughs> so, so that is, I mean, that is like 90% of the time because once someone has something working, they don't like going to a new venue. They don't like going to a new location. They like to just do the thing because that's not, that's not a variable they want to work on. So my I'm only guessing there's a 50-50 chance that, that Nashville or the venue asked for something more than what they had gotten before um, and uh, and the organization just decided to move. Yeah, that, that strikes a real resonant chord with me because I remember Nashville was the heart of kind of the traditional country acts and then Austin, particularly when Austin City Limits came out, became kind of like the outlaw music place. And I think a lot of the young bands like that. Industrial Light and Magic is in, in, and Lucasfilm is now in the Presidio in San Francisco, not in San Rafael. I wonder why that happened. Yeah, <laughs> I was there for that one. <laughs> so, so that was that was San Rafael asking for a lot of extra things, and and Lucasfilm going, we don't want to, you know, we don't think we should have to build a daycare center for the whole city to stay here, and and then off off we went. Jeff Keithley, your thought? Uh, being from Texas, maybe it's just because Texas is better at country music; it's bigger, <laughs> and there is Texas country. Uh, I mean, I'm just pointing out the obvious here. Okay, let's move on to the next question before we get ourselves in deep trouble. <laughs> next question is from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. And Kenny asks, are Ramza audio mixers still a thing? Uh, were these Panasonic Advanced Line products? Uh, what has happened to the brand? Alex, do you have any idea? Uh, they're not a thing. I mean, they're they're a thing in vintage, but they're not. I don't think, in, I don't think they're still making anything. Um, so I, I will say that a, a lot of companies did not really make the conversion um, well from analog to digital like that was a really hard turn for a lot of folks and then i i will say that if they did make the turn uh behringer just annihilated the the market <laughs> like in the in the sub two thousand dollar range i mean i think that yamaha is now creeping into that market but in the sub two thousand range uh behringer just just really they from between the xr12 xr18 the x32s all the different x32s they just carpeted the place and so I think that it made it really hard for a lot of a lot of the other mixers. You still see the analog mixers, but I have to admit, when I see an analog mixer, I'm like, really? <laughs> Are we really going to use that? You know. And so, so I think that that's the um, uh, I think that's been the, the problem for a lot of the conversion. By the way, I don't know if we if we had a uh, one of our friends uh, that that makes consoles, uh, Harrison, uh, has now uh, was bought by SSL. That was just announced a couple of days ago. So we're pretty excited to see where that goes as well. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think the, the high-end digital mixers, and there's some high-end analog mixers that have still do really well. But in that sub-2,000 or sub-$5,000 range, 
uh, it became a pretty hard place to be, at least what, what we've seen. in Because we see, the other one is, what is it? Q, is it XQ, QL something or other? There's another one that QLC, Q, QXC. I can't think of it right now. I see it every once in a while. It's like a touch screen. They drive me crazy. So anyway, go ahead. Keithley? I think it's it's a lot of the Behringer QLC. effect, actually. Behringer flooded the market at yeah. first with all these low-cost uh, boards, and they just had massive economies of scale as they flooded the market. Uh, shortly behind them, Mackie kind of stooped to their level a little bit further. It used to be you could grab a Mackie and run a truck over it, and it would still live. But uh, I haven't seen that kind of workmanship in quite a while. Behringer's were good for the first hour or two. You used it, and then you figured out, oh, that's why I did I'm Behringer. Uh, but yeah, the Ramza stuff, I haven't seen that in years and right. years. And if I see it, I'll run from it because it's that old. Yeah. And, and I will say that what Behringer figured out how to do, I mean, we've used, I mean, I have a lot of Behringers. I have a lot of Behringers and a lot of Yamahas um, and a, or we, we, I've had a lot of those and, and some Allen Heaths. And the big thing for the Behringers, they were super solid for us. I mean, we use them, but we use them in pretty careful places, but we literally had a Midas, which is the bigger Behringer, the Midas 32, M32, submerged in about a, a foot and a half of water at, at the, at a convention uh, for a couple hours and we, you know, cause we got this huge, I mean, massive rainstorm and uh, we took it out, never used it in production again, but just used it in the office. Totally worked. <laughs> like I was like, I was amazed. Like, I was like, it's submerged in water uh, and it totally worked. We just didn't trust it to set. We would never want to explain to an, to a client that we ever took that back one out, that one out, but it just sat there and we used it all the time. There was nothing, nothing wrong with it. So there, I, I will say that the Midas brand as well as, I mean, again, the Behringer stuff, we've had a really good, really good success with at that price point. Um, then we moved to, we typically moved to Yamaha after that. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's your experience with AI on Bing and how do you rank AI offerings that are out there now for accessibility and ease of use? John Preto. Oh, it is. Matt. Oh, there you are. Yeah, Matt, ease of use. When I go to Bing, I look. it reminds me of GeoCities. All kinds of stuff pop up and Microsoft rewards and all kinds of stuff. They just make it terribly hard to get just to, to a clean piece of AI. The the OpenAI interface, their chat interface is the cleanest thing out there. And they're both based on GPT-4. Microsoft had access to GPT-4 August of last year. I watched a seminar this weekend and their research department was testing it in August of last year. And so everything that you see in Bing now is integrated as GPT-4, but still OpenAI's chat interface is the best I've seen. Courtney? I've been playing around with the uh, Bing interface. It's available in all of their Edge browsers uh, in this little uh, corner thing that you punch up. If you go to bing.com, you have it there as well, and you can use the audio interface just to ask it a question. So it's pretty easy to use. And as Preto says, it uses uh, GPT-4. But uh, the, the way they have it organized, they have three different choices over here on the little drop-down when you hit the little Bing button. Bing, uh, you got chat, which is kind of like what chat GPT is. And then you've got a composed version where if you wanted to compose something longer and you tell it what your uh, target is that you're going to be composing for a Gmail, a blog post, et cetera. And uh, you can set it um, the level of accuracy and the length, um, you know, and how uh, the, the different types of, of format that you want it to, to respond as. So, it has a, and if and if you click insights, it looks at whatever you have open in the Edge browser and gives you further insight uh, using AI 
uh, and a method to, you know, probe that, uh, that question further using their AI engine. And it all uses GPT-4. So it's pretty easy to use. And it works cross-platform on everything. Alex? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, chat, of the just the chat, uh, the open open AI's chat function is what I, I just leave that window open. Of course, I'm a Mac user, so I don't really think about, I mean, I, I'm sure that Bing works there, but <laughs> I haven't opened Bing in a long time. David Paskin. I um, downloaded one of these um, extensions for Chrome that brings ChatGPT in, which I know I probably shouldn't have done, but it then prompted me to uh, install something called Monica, which is really kind of neat. So uh, you highlight any text on any website and click explain and Monica using AI will give you an explanation of what that thing is. You can also translate it or summarize. It's a really nice integration um, and it's, it's very clean, very simple. Um, I'm enjoying it. Interesting. I hadn't seen that before. Uh, I'm sure some people will be exploring that. Let's move on to the next question. We're pretty close to the top of the hour here. Uh, next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And now Paul asks, is it a good idea to make big, long list of to-dos every day and make a lot of them really easy to do? <laughs> do you think this is a good idea? Hacking your own brain, David Paskin. Well, it's less about hacking your own brain and more about the satisfaction that comes from checking things off of your to-do list that you did. <laughs> uh, and I'm all about that, but I'm fundamentally against to-do lists because uh, if it isn't on my calendar, it doesn't get done. And so everything I have to do, I schedule it uh, on my, on, I put it somewhere on my calendar for the day. I'm also one of those freaks that likes to have a zero inbox at the end of the day. But um, if it, it, it to-do list to me, th they could just sit there. You know, the, these, a lot of people use Notion to create, um, uh, you know, to-do list, things I'd like to do sometime in the future. No, today, what do I have to get done? When am I going to do it? Move on. I would struggle to decide whether to put wake up or breathe first on my just check it off to have fun day. Anyway, we're at the top of the hour, which means that it's time to turn our attention to our second hour topic today. And today we're going to be talking about our predictions for NAB. So this is the time for both. Uh, we've got some things coming in in terms of questions from those of you who are producers out. Uh, and we encourage that. Please give us some suggestions of what you've been thinking about. NAB should be a big deal for us here at Office Hours this year. We've got a tremendous crew going. We're going to try to have some brand new things. We'll be crawling all over the things. And if you have seen something or read about something or have uh, taps to individual parts of our industry, I mean, we, we cover a lot of different technologies here with audio and video and production things and grip gear and Lord knows what. So in any of those areas, we encourage you to, to toss some questions in, give us some thoughts. I'm going to send it to Alex here to talk about some of the plans that he has made and kind of what his vision is for this. But this is your chance to maybe get ahead of the curve and get the crew focused on some of the things that are of most interest to you. So, Alex, what are we going to do here? Yeah, well, let us know what, what people think that we should cover there. So, and more than what our production is, uh, we'll talk about that. Another, you know, we're we're really looking at what the, um, you know, as we look at our predictions of what we think is going to happen at NAB or things that we're tracking. Of course, NAB started like you know it started this week. So, Sony's released some new. Um, chips which we're pretty excited about 44 megapixel chips that are that are um, pretty amazing so we should see those ripple through the system over time uh, we do think that the sony may have more cameras to show uh, as we go into nab but we're not sure when that'll actually happen aja of course released some updates for some of their hardware um, as well as 
some new Dante products. Uh, we talked about Dante AV products that they're using for transport. Um, and we also, um, you know, have heard rumors that 2110 is going to be a bigger deal this this year. So we're going to see how that, what that looks like. Uh, uh, we'll see what those announcements look like. It's, it'll be interesting to see. A lot of folks aren't doing the press events that they used to. So um, it's interesting also to see what the trend is there. A lot of videos are getting released. A lot of people are putting out, just putting out the releases, but we don't have that kind of in-person press conference thing with as many companies. So it'll be interesting to see how how that actually works. But I think that as a trend, uh, we're looking, as we look for trends, I think we are going to be looking, there's a lot of remote production. Um, Sony pushed a big, another big push for that as well. Um, so remote production, I think is going to be a big, is going to be something that a lot of people are interested in. Um, I think that uh, Zoom is going to probably talk about things tomorrow. <laughs> we know that because Andy's coming to join us. <laughs> so, so, so my awesome. prediction is whatever whatever's going to happen with Zoom for NAB is going to happen tomorrow in our show. So, so anyway, so the uh, so so I think that that's going to be exciting to see. You know what they've been working on uh, as we get ready to NA, for NAB. So that that should be an interesting show tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I think that there's, um, you know, things I'm looking for, of course, are remote transmission. So more things related to whether it's uh, cellular or satellite or SRT, Zixie, those kinds of things I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to um, as, I, as I go out there. More capture devices, so whether it's audio or video, wireless transmission, um, you know, we're going to be really interested to see, you know, what Teradek... Um, releases next week. Uh, and so a lot of, lot of other things there, um, you know, but those kinds of transmission systems um, and processes uh, should be interesting. Also, we did already see, again, this week has been a little bit of mini NEB. LiveView now has a cloud production, um, you know, that they, I think that they purchased a company that does that and has, has built that out. And maybe Jeff can get into that in more detail, but that looks really interesting. I think we're gonna see more and more of how do you do production in the cloud. And so we're gonna see the, the tools are still pretty rudimentary, but they're getting, you know, they're getting better. And I think that over the next couple of NABs, you're going to see it, you know, really become a, a big focus for what people are looking at. Courtney. Hey, you mentioned a lot of the stuff. I was going to point out the Dante, uh, the Aja's Dante uh, AV4K uh, unit. It's like that's the transmitter. You now you need one for transmission and one for reception. So together you're going to spend, drop about 5K on that um, little Dante interface for uh, audio and video from Aja. So it's kind of pricey entry point. I don't know if they're going to come up with anything cheaper, uh, but that would be a good market for people to uh, have a fairly low cost uh, uh, piece of hardware to interface Dante AV into your, your system. But since you got to buy the Autonate chips, I don't know how cheap they're going to actually get. Jeff Keithley, what are your thoughts? I've been thinking a lot about NAV this year. Uh, actually really excited to go uh last year it was kind of a last minute thing thrown together but uh this year i've been watching a lot of vendors and and i've, I've actually made appointments which i've never done in the 20 plus years that i've gone i just kind of floated around right five of those years i was doing trade shows for new tech so it was a little bit different then too but in, in the last five six years i, I definitely when i've gone I, i've just kind of like floated and Hey, what's what's new kind of thing but i've actually made appointments with vendors like look i need an hour of your time i we need to cross a bridge and uh i'm looking forward to to those meetings and and uh I, I, and again last year was kind of like the great meetup it was kind of like everybody just kind of seeing people you know getting back to to know those people that we missed maybe we may have seen them on zoom but it's just that personal touch um regarding uh, easy live is the uh 
the company that was bought by uh, LiveView or the merged with LiveView last year. It was announced at NAB last year. And so the studio, uh, LiveView Studio, is just the rebrand of Easy Live. It's fairly the same platform, just better integration. Uh, that I'm looking forward to seeing that. I, I've seen some pre-event stuff on it, and it, it definitely is uh, it's been well thought out. I, I'm, I give them uh, kudos for sure, and I'm looking forward to seeing that and playing with it a little bit more. I would agree also with Alex that uh, remote production is is kind of the key word. It's not so cloud is still there. Everybody's still talking cloud and saying, hey, I'm going to support the cloud and things like that. But I think more and more people are, are really embracing the remote production paradigm, the one we've been using for almost a decade now. Uh, and they're... Uh, there's more and more people that are stepping up to that and providing tools for us that are that are in that world. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those tools come to play that uh, I've been waiting for for a long time, like better IP accessible KVMs, for instance. That's one of my big things I'll be looking for. Uh, I, we have some now with Adder that we use, but uh, we, we we need better ones. We need more feature set on the on the far end to make it inter- easy to integrate with people that are our remote producers, our remote operators and things like that. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's, it's going to be a good show. Alex, you had a follow-up. Yeah, other things that we're looking at um, as as we c- kind of go through that is on the higher end, uh, we're starting. We're going to see some you know larger, a lot of eight K stuff is starting to float out from production. So we've got lots of TVs that flooded the market uh, last last year, but really you know production has been behind. So we're seeing that to hap- that happening. Another trend to watch is high frame rate. So HFR is 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 coming up to speed, and so we're seeing. Uh, you have to remember that every TV. And every almost every Apple device in the last sold in the last two years is capable of 120 frames a second. And every phone that Apple has sold is capable of 120 frames per second. And now, so far, people mostly use that as slow motion. Uh, but a lot of folks have been wondering when that's going to happen. A lot of these cameras are all coming up to 120 frames per second. So we're going to see, you know, whether people are showing that off. Uh, one place to see that if you are going to NAB. Uh, my guess is in the last couple of years that I went uh, that uh, Sony will show. 120 frame 8K on their LED walls, and it is stunning. Like, definitely, it is the of if you see one thing <laughs> at NAB, go over and see that wall. And if it is the 8K 120 uh, samples, it's it it's just hard not to look at it. And then you realize why people are talking about it. And so, so I think that looking at that, there's going to be some, you know, some transport things. So a lot of folks are fixing. Um, I, I have some friends that are fixing things at high high, you know, 8K, 120, 8K, 68, 4K, 120, those kinds of things. So we want to kind of keep our eye on that. Also, a lot of the more HDR tools. So you're seeing a lot more LUTs and a lot more tools that are making it easier for the FSHDRs, the the color boxes by AJA. But I think that we'll see other companies also uh, adding uh, more and more uh, high dynamic range solutions. And again, immersive is now much larger because Apple put it into everything that they do. Um, immersive is, is more important. So you'll probably see more tools around Atmos and, and immersive uh, audio, uh, as well as the HDR tools. For me, it's been fascinating. You know, I started in the broadcast era at NAB in my first years, and everything was about the big broadcasters and what they needed. You know, you go to NAB, and literally, if you were working for a huge network, you could buy on the show floor a fully equipped Belljet Ranger helicopter with a Tyler mount and all the rest of that. It's still there. 
yeah, those kind of huge solutions. But then starting just before the pandemic, probably in the two shows that I went to before, you started hearing these things like OTT, over the top, and they were just barely getting their toes in. Uh, Even five or six years before that, when Apple was a big kind of – Anchor for the South Hall, the digital people were pushing into the traditional analog broadcasting. And that happened for five or six or seven years until Apple stopped doing it. Black Magic had their ascendance, took the space that Apple used to have. But it, the point I'm making here is that as the whole industry makes these giant transformations to people watch television in their living room with an antenna in their home to my watch will probably be getting sitcoms in the next couple of years and everything is distributed and everything is on demand and everything is accessible through IP, you see these big tectonic shifts in the industry. And boy, if you pay attention to what's coming and not necessarily the things that are big this year, but the hints of what's coming in three years, five years, 10 years, it really gives you a a much more powerful suggestion of maybe I shouldn't concentrate over here in my career. Maybe I should look over there because the energy, the youth, the excitement is with computer companies now, not with broadcast companies. And that'll go on for a decade and then something else will come in. I just think it's it's critically important for educating yourself as to what your opportunities are in the future to pay attention to things like NAB. You know, it's, it's broadcaster still branded, but boy, you got to expect all the the digit, the digerati, the younger people, the people coming from YouTube and that to, to discover how powerful a convention like this can be if you play it well. Alex, more thoughts? Yeah, it, you know, the other the other trend we're going to, a lot of us are going to look at is just footprint of, of different companies. There's a lot of companies that used to be at NAB that are still there, um, but they are doing, the renting out entire bars. Uh, one of the things I, I've talked to someone that I was, <laughs> that I that I did some work with and they said, yeah, we're just, we're just taking over uh, an entire bar restaurant, I guess it's a restaurant, because uh, it was cheaper. It was cheaper to take out the entire restaurant for the week and just invite and have people come over and tell them where we are. We were already t- trying to get everyone to come to our booth, but for you know fifty percent less, we could just do it, do it there, and have it be luxury and it's quiet and we have them in the space. And so we're seeing uh, more of that happening. We're also seeing smaller brands just moving to meeting rooms, which a lot of in- and a lot of very large brands have moved to meeting rooms a long time ago. I think you know. It's not that Apple's not there. <laughs> you know, so, so there's a, you can always tell when when, when someone from Apple is because their 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 main name tag is turned upside down. <laughs> so they start talking to you and asking you on video, and you don't, and their, their name tag is covered. Usually, it's it's not just Apple, but there's a couple of companies like that wandering around. But that's a, that's a, usually a telltale sign. Um, and so uh, so I think a lot of companies have kind of moved into those things. It's interesting that we don't see things like Pepcom, and uh, I think a lot of those ones, the showstoppers. I wonder whether NAB pushed back on those. Uh, those were really important things to a lot of us, and I'm not sure exactly, you know, why they they actually stopped. I found that to me that was the most useful part of NAB for me was going to Showstoppers and and Pepcom because it was like I didn't have to deal with everybody else. I just as a press, I could just walk around and have some good food and <laughs> and and just talk to people. It was a lot 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 easier. 
Yeah, those hospitality suites, you, you don't see a lot of the stuff in the back end if you just go and go onto the show floor and look at stuff there and then go back to your hotel room. But as you go more and more, uh, you all of a sudden meet people and somebody says, well, you know, this company's having a party tonight. Do you want to come? And they'll give you a little pass into the party. And uh, there are all sorts of luxury suites in the hotels that are taken over by not even necessarily the big guys. Is, Sometimes it's just the medium brands. Is there a super meet? This I didn't see any information I don't, you know, about that. Mike Horton and Dan Baruby kind of had a parting of the ways, and Dan had the super meet website, so I haven't mm. seen much energy over there either. And I, I probably should ping Michael and find out whether they're doing anything. My suspicion is not. Last year, um, Dan had uh, a, an event kind of thing at one of the hotels that I think you got some sponsorship for, but I don't know whether it's going. I haven't. I haven't seen anything cross my feeds. Yeah, the other big one is the Media Motion Ball. Um, that that yes. um, you know. So the Media Motion Ball is on Monday night, and if you just go to Media Mo, if if you're going to NAB and you want to go there, I'm going to try to get over there for a little bit. I'll carry ping me, and, and I'm going to. But the uh, I'm going to try to get over to to look at it. But it's usually a great, just a really great group of people uh, on Monday night. Um, go to the Media Motion Ball. So check that out as well. Jeff Keithley, more thoughts? I was going to agree that uh, it seems that, uh, I guess you would say, the separated suites, the the hotels, the bars, the restaurants, and stuff that are being taken over. I've noticed that trend a lot more uh, this year than I have in the past. Uh, matter of fact, one of the one of the vendors at my first meeting was like, hey, do you want to have lunch? I was like, well, I'm going to eat. So, yeah, where? <laughs> and I, he's like, just come to our suite at, and uh, right across the street and sure. Uh, come on over and we'll we'll have a conversation there so we can talk and i'm like great it sounds good to me um i'm actually staying at the renaissance there at the lvcc which i in 23 24 years i've been going to nab never ever thought i would get into there and i booked it and i was like really okay yeah. I, I don't expect it to be great <laughs> you know like a you know amazing hotel or anything like that because i know it's been there forever but it's close and i was like i could actually walk to everywhere instead of depending if it, on if it rains you won't even get wet <laughs> you're attached sure to that. the convention center i, I will say the, the renaissance is a lot better than the Westgate, which is where i'm staying <laughs> so the that was the other option I, actually and i've I, stayed at the Westgate, and no, no i i i have stayed at the Westgate for 20 years you know, and it's mostly been uh, that it is so e the convenience of it to the and a lot is it's because i I speak a lot and I'm speaking a lot this year. Um, and um, the North Hall is connected directly to the, almost directly, you have to walk across this little thing to get to the West Gate. And so because I spoke a lot and the speaking was all in the North Hall, I always stayed at the West Gate because I just wanted the minimum, I didn't care what it was, I just wanted the minimum amount of time from my hotel room to the to where I had to speak. And so um, so that's that was my my big rule. The, the Renaissance, I always dreamed of staying in the Renaissance, but every time I saw it, it was it was either not available or so expensive that I was like, oh, $600 a night is not, not, not going to work for me. And so, here's yeah. another pro tip for you. If you stay at the Hilton, what used to be the Hilton, I don't even know what the branding is. You now, get so lost. It was the Hilton, and then it was the Las Vegas Hotel, and now I think it's the Westgate. I think Westgate. Yeah. Westgate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is the it is the first stop on the monorail. So it goes from there to the convention center and then to yeah. all the hotels down the strip. So if you decide that you don't want a car there, which is really, I actually prefer not to have a car at NAB. No, I don't do uh, 
no matter what hotel you're at, you can always get on the monorail if you stay at one of those hotels at either end because you're first on going this way or you're last off going the other way. And so you, it's, it's easier to get a space. They used to also, long ago, now I'm going to date myself, there was a time, and I felt like it was just last year that they took it down, but I think it probably might, might have been a decade ago, uh, that they had the, the Star Trek experience in the, in yes. the, in the lobby. Dude, so that there has was, been gone forever. I know. It's, like, it's <laughs> probably been 10 years. No, it's, it's not. such a big deal. No, though. I think it, it has been 10 years. years. I was like, yeah. I was like well, every time I go there now, I'm like, that used to be the Star Trek. You know, you know, know you're old when you walk best. by and you go, that used to be the Star Trek experience, and it was great. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was like a Disney theme ride yeah. kind of, yeah, small they, they version gave of that you, in the you hotel. You get drinks that were all like glowing and, you know, all that stuff. And a so. Ferengi server. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just fun. All right. Uh, let's move on to our first question here and continue. And, and remember that if you have questions, it can be about anything having to do with NAB. It can be about uh, the after-hour partying or uh, what you want to see. We're going to try to do mostly what we're looking forward to. So let's get to question one. Uh, first question is from Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia. Which two vendors would you like to see collaborate on a product and what would it be? Ooh, Jeff Keithley, give us your wish list. Well, if I had my druthers, well, it would definitely be virtualization of a real audio console workflow. So I'm talking to you, Lavo or Calrec, true virtualization of your whole ecosystem in a virtual cloud container so that we could put it wherever we want to and have all those features to be able to trickle down. So it's AWS and Lavo, because currently Lavo has the best, uh, easiest way to port just the way their their OS is. But um, I'll take Calric too, either one. That's my. Sure. That's what I want to see. John Preto. If Apple collaborated with Boeing, I could finally get my flying car that would be fully automated and I can use that for lots of things in production. Ooh, that would be pretty. You want Elon Musk in there, so it's all electric or something. Uh, let's see, uh, Alex. You know, I, I think that it, with the purchase of Harrison, I think that SSL is now the closest <laughs> to, to being able to uh, to, to virtualize uh, a mixer. So I think that 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 would be it'd be interesting to see. I do think that audio in the cloud is one of the biggest problems right now. Like one of the pa biggest pain points is is really complex routing and processing and not just basic audio but really what we do in a in a console uh is not i don't think is properly represented there so i do think i do agree with jeff on that one go ahead uh courtney uh fujinon box lenses and sony's autofocus system if they could collaborate <laughs> on those two things what a boon that would be to the sports business I still, I, I, you know, an interesting thing, this has nothing to do, and I'm not saying this portrays anything, but I live in uh, a particular area of California where there are some big companies around us. In fact, Sony's North American headquarters is pretty close to me, as is a thing that used to be Hewlett Packard, but is now an Apple thing. I'm thinking, I wonder if Apple and Sony are going to start talking more and do, you know, back in the early days of digital video, the Sony decks were the things that connected best to things like Final Cut that we used a lot of those Sony decks through FireWire in the early days. Sony had been, to my mind, and, and I'm not painting them poorly, but they just seemed like they didn't care for a number of years in there. They weren't doing the kind of innovation we'd seen in the early days. And I think they lost a lot of market share. This year, it feels to me like they're coming back pretty strong. I think they've made some strategic changes. I don't know whether management has shifted around. I don't follow the business part of it that much. But I do see the potential for more collaboration in some of those ways. And boy, it would be so nice if 
Final Cut and Blackmagic got their acts together in terms of software. That would just make my heart sing. Oh, well. Guy, you had some thoughts? Yeah, I know it'll never happen, but I'd love to see Blackmagic and NDI get together. That would be amazing because we're already going to see this switcher that just got announced uh, from Panasonic that we'll see at the show. I'm looking forward to seeing this. So this is Panasonic's new uh, SRT NDI uh, plus we also have HDMI and SDI in and out. So that's a that's a lot in a small package. So I'd love to see the bigger Blackmagic switchers adopt NDI and SRT and be able to take take them in so I can have remote cameras coming in and just a nice small form factor with a T-bar. So that's that's one that I'd love to see. Another one, which, uh, let me see if I can pull it up here, which we will see at the show, a Blackmagic uh, studio camera on a uh, PT. Oh, look at that. That's head. So this will be in the uh, data video booth. They've got the control in there. So we'll, there'll be a full-size pool table in the booth and we'll see how this looks. How much is that head? That head's like two grand, and then you need a controller for it too. So that's depending on which controller you get, that can be uh, another thousand or so. That's great. Those are the kind of things you walk around through the booths and you go into even a big booth. Like I remember the year I think I went to Blackmagic's booth after they had taken over that that South Hall corner space from Apple. Um, And they had a lot of cameras and a lot of systems. And then over on the side in one little area, there was this one camera. And I went, you know, that would be absolutely perfect for what I do every day. It wasn't what Blackmagic was saying. This is our, you know, they were introducing the Ursas and things like that at that show. But you can also find that one thing that just fits what you need to do so well. And you just get this feeling like, Oh, that might be the solution and might make my life day-to-day in my productions easier. Jeff Keithley, more thoughts? I, I would be amiss if I didn't say I, I am excited to see in person some of this stuff. My friends at Mark Roberts is uh, debuting. Uh, they bought a company called Slide Camera earlier last year. Last year, earlier. Yeah, basically almost 12 year months ago. And uh, Slide Camera makes a lot of grip equipment and also... Uh, sliding rails systems and uh they have a new telescoping uh column that is part of their ecosystem now that is going to be really nice to be able to pair that with a rail and uh, get some really creative moves right to the point of what you almost could get with a with a robot on rails with uh, like an arm on rails and uh and also another client vendor friend of mine too is uh view like view studios we had them on a while back uh we had tim on right um Go see, I think. yes, uh, they have the big LED volumes. They have four different studios. Actually, they're up to like 20 now uh, with their associate studios. And go see their view experience partnership with MRMC. It's going to be in the middle. I think it's right in the middle between South and North Hall, like it was last year. It's like you sit on a motorcycle, uh, like a Tron bike, it looks like, I believe. And then it has the LED wall behind them. And you go through a little thing. It's just a free little experience. Uh, But whenever you break that down with everything that's going on, it's a really, really phenomenal approach of uh, a virtual production, uh, not remote production, but virtual production. And, and that's, I still feel like that's probably the next thing besides remote production, cloud still being you know, thrown around. Uh, the next thing that more and more people are seeing is virtual production because that's spilling over into 
a lot of TV productions. Um, like for instance, the masters used it, uh, recently, uh, Wimbledon definitely used it, uh, last year. A lot of, uh, sky was using it in a lot of their coverage and those virtual sets and virtual production, uh, uh, not having to bring out and build this huge studio in an environment, uh, that's still, it, it talks to the right people, the money people. So I, I think that's going to be a big part of what we'll see also. Alex, more thoughts? Yeah, and I think we're starting to see those screens get to the pitch that makes sense for video production. Uh, you know, really, we've seen them, people got a little ahead of themselves. So you look at a lot of the Sunday news things, <laughs> a lot of Murray, uh, or if it wasn't Murray, there was a lot of pixelization and a lot of things. They, a lot of folks were a little too far out in front uh, with screens that weren't far enough back, sensors that didn't really match. But I think that as we start to see the upgrades happening uh, at NEB, we're going to probably see more and more of where those, the, all that stuff starts to line up and make sense. So it's going to be a really interesting time. I, I hope that MRMC uh, uh, does the, do you think they're going to do the dueling, the dueling arms? They have this thing with the dueling, these two uh, arms that. I haven't advance. seen the booth set up yet, but I, I don't think it's on, I don't think it's going to be there oh, but it was the coolest thing it was so cool like these two arms are going back and forth and around each other and when you first see it you're like oh, oh they're gonna hit each, hit each other but they just they miss each other by inches and just keep going and it's, it's fun it's a fun thing to see i want to know if dji and some of those guys are going to do more drone cages remember the years that they were building those huge cages and flying drones around and yeah letting the, people operate them? I, I will say that there are certain booths that i that are must visit and DGI, DJI is one of them. Um, and I, they have so many cool things that, that are typically there to play with. The thing that I, that I really look at is the, the, the head with the, they have a, it's basically like a gear head. It's, it's just a controller and it's got wheels. So you can, you know, pan and tilt wheels, except that they're digital wheels and they're controlling the Ronin head. And it just, as someone who's used a gearhead, it feels magical. <laughs> just like this, there's no friction, there's no nothing. And it's just super smooth and you're rolling in and out. And I, I, I go over there and I play with it for about, I have to get my, my, my fix. I play with it 10 or 15 minutes and I go, oh, I could, I could rule the world with this, with this head and this the controller. And then I remind myself that it's 15 grand for the whole package and then I go work on something else <laughs> so, so anyway so we'll see you know, like okay never mind and you know my fingers are crossed that i know we're going to do a good job this year but this what this portends what office hours is coverage of nab as we as i hear alex's plans and as we sit in these meetings and we're trying to figure out what we're going to do the potential for being able to cover something massive like this trade show in a much more efficient much more engaging well, and a less time wasted fashion <laughs> And, is and the, immense. Well, I'm already the, the discussions for Cinegear have already begun. So I'm I'm talking to vendors about what we're going to do for Cinegear, and, and I'm really I mean I'm excited about NAB, but Cinegear the Cinegear coverage um, is going to be interesting as well. So so we just have, we because I, I think and it's, and I think that we are going to um, I think the big thing with with NAB is that we're just going to try to experiment a lot. So you're going to want to watch us next week of just. There's going to be a lot of stuff that isn't in the live feed. It's going to be all VOD. There's going to be shorts. There's going to be a lot of other bits and pieces. And then there's going to be some great live stuff where we're giving you. But what, what our goal is for next next week is to give you the gamut, you know, to have you see like lots and lots and lots of little bits and pieces of it so that you can see all those things and figure out what formats make the most sense for us. And, and I think um, so it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't think people understand that because these hotels are separated, if you have if you're in the central hall and you need to get to something in West Hall, 
you have a heck of a trek. I mean, this is like three, each hall is like football field size plus. So from walking from one, I mean, it's like there's two football fields next to each other, and there's a third one out in an L. And if you make a bad plan for your route through there, or if, you know, you hear while you're at the show, there's something incredible happening over there. It's two halls away. Well, and and, and I, <laughs> what I will say is that um, the reason that I think that the shorts will be fun, I, I take a lot of notes with my phone, and that's what I'm going to try to turn into shorts as we go through it, is the notes that I used to take at every, I mean, that I've taken for the last decade with my phone where I just point at it and I go, this is this, this is this. And that those are oftentimes personal ones for me. And the reason I do that is because both with the Rye and with La- and, and with Vegas, I don't know if I'm coming back. <laughs> like, like, I don't know, like with my schedule on, on any of these things, I don't know if I'm going to be back for, to come back to that part of the hall again. So I'm going to capture, if I th- thought it was interesting, I'm going to capture it right then. I'm going to pick it up and, and save it. And then I'll move on because otherwise I can't, I just don't know. I, I want to make sure I remember it, that I that I saw something really cool. I don't want to pick up any paperwork because I don't want to carry it around. And so I just take videos with my phone. And so that's what I'm going to try to turn into uh, shorts um, for, for YouTube. I'm 100% supported that strategy. I can't tell you how many times in the first five years I went to NAB, I'd say, oh, I'll just come back and look at that later. That's yeah. pretty cool, but I got to do something else right now. You never get back. There's just too much information flooding yeah. into your brain. Jeff, you had some more thoughts? You just brought something up, uh, Alex, that that made me think about it. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try a new card approach this year. I, I haven't had business cards in years because I just don't agree with throwing away paper. Uh, but the uh, the QR codes have worked for me in the past. I, I know, Chris. Okay, uh, but the other side of that too is the uh, the uh, what is it called dot or something like that. But it's basically RFID cards. And so I'm going to try that this year to see if I could, I'm able to, to get the information I need. But I found myself, I do exactly what Alex does now. I, I go back and look at my phone later. I'm like, what am I taking a picture of? What did I take a video of? And, and I think video is more useful now because I can narrate it. And it's like, okay, well, this is, we'll need to call these guys and look into it later. Uh, two, three years down, no, it's probably five years ago now, uh, whenever I actually had a booth there in the NDI pavilion with one of our first products, I actually used my phone uh, as a picture of everybody. Instead of relying on the scanner, I was like, just turn your card around and let me, or your badge around, let me take a picture of it. And that was so beneficial because it, it, it also allowed me to relate because my mind, I remember faces with conversations with that name. And so I would just take a picture of them real quick. And it, it was kind of, people were kind of weird at the time. And so then you turn it into a selfie thing and then it's a little easier, but the, the part there is, you know, getting a good shot of the face and the, and the, the badge at the same time. But no, I, I, I anybody else going to be using something like QR codes or, or, or hundred percent taking pictures of people you meet, even in the evening thing, I do exactly the same thing. This person is interesting. Can I get a card? Well, that's for a picture of the card. That's, I'm not talking about that reason. I'm not talking about for blackmail. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just saying even on the show floor, I would take a, I would grab one of the business cards because often uh, the people who are doing demos would have a business card there. I would shoot that to get the information on the company, their phone number and the rest of that. Then I'd shoot a wide of the booth to say, this is remind you visually of where you were and your thought at the time. And it was real powerful for me. Yeah. Uh, Alex? And one of the things I'm really interested to see, you know, just I'm, I'm interested to see how my production process changes when I'm trying to actually post something to YouTube as opposed to my internal notes and how slows it down. Because when I'm doing my internal notes, I'm doing 20 an hour. 
like literally just 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 punching out these massive amounts of notes and I'm, i think it'll slow down a little bit because i'll probably take it a couple times because i'm like oh you know and um but what i see in the future is that the first day of a conference you know we might have a whole slew of people that are all putting stuff up and we may put out 100 to 150 shorts you know that are less than a minute about everything that you can see so that people if you're going to the conference you know or if we're doing live streams the next couple of days that it's a reference point you know like here's uh, you know here's all the things that we saw at this thing that at this um thing that that's there and potentially you know for some of the smaller shows like cinegear's a bit smaller than nab we could theoretically hit almost every booth, you know, like or the or the top half in uh, in a day if we had fifteen people out there doing it. And so, so I think that that's the kind of thing that we're going to experiment with to to take a look at it. To so that, but my goal is really that you really get to see it. I'm also going to shoot some just wide shots so that people get a sense of how the scale of of what NAB looks like, as opposed to just just the the close ups of each booth um, in interviews. But what does it actually look like? Yeah, I think that's a really good idea, Guy. Your thoughts? Yeah, Jeff, we should get one of those CNN-style cameras out of the, your hotel room of the whole lay of the land so we can always have a fallback to cut to your shot from your hotel room. And then we get the, because the Renaissance is right there. So in fact, here's it's the uh, the lay of the land. Here's where Jeff's staying over here at the Renaissance, and that's by South Hall, which won't be utilized for this show. Um, the reason why I brought up this map, though, is when Bill said, if you did to get from central to west, you could see the hop over there. The fastest way to get there now is to hop there's a, now an underground tunnel here with the Teslas in them, and they'll drive you over here to the West Hall. So if you need to go from here to here, that's the fastest. And I'm staying at the home to Suites uh, Hilton with Greg Gibson and Sherrig, and we could jump right of the loop station and jump right over to here and jump right over to there. So that's a pretty cool uh, way to go with those underground tunnels. So don't go walking. This is a long trek. If you try to walk this, um, Super long. It's, it's a long trek. So just I, to give everybody the lay of the land, I'll put up. Link to this in the chat. Well, it's not as nice a hotel. I just want to point out how well placed the West Gate is <laughs> for the thing. It's like, oh, I'm right next to the North Hall and the West Hall. The Renaissance so. a nicer hotel because the West Gate's been there forever. But it's the West way, Gate with nicer. that covered, and, and up until this year, the South Hall was where everything, almost everything, you know, that you yeah, really wanted absolutely. was all in the South Hall. So it was. It's. Uh, I, I wonder if they're building up something else in the South Hall, or are they just leaving it empty? So I think it's because the West Hall is the newer space. New they're they're yeah. really pushing people out there. Uh, and, and there is a little bit to be desired about being up on that end where you're a little bit closer to get to the strip and stuff too. And the South Hall is massive. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. it's daunting. Like you just think, you know, I think that's the, the part of it is, is that it, if you, unless you can fill that space, it, you know, because you could probably fit almost all of the current NAB into the south hall like i think Absolutely. that's part of the part of the issue there and so it, it, and and it's nice to have them sectioned out a little bit it'll be interesting to see what the reorg looks like and where all it looks like you know a lot of them are in the same place but but there's new ones with the west hall so it'll be interesting to see what happens i remember the first year i covered the south hall i was thinking my god i'm exhausted already first day and somebody said have you gone to the second floor oh yeah what well <laughs> the the crazy thing for me is that i so the first two times I went to NAB, I never made it to the uh, to the South Hall or the North Hall or the Central Hall. The the multimedia, the new media um, in the '90s was in the Sands. Yeah. So right. the Sands is like far enough away from right. the the. I didn't even know it existed. Like I thought all of NAB. Ride. When I when I covered NAB, I stayed in the Mirage. We walked across and went into you know went into the Sands. And that was it. Like that was my experience of NAB because I was a demo artist for Electric Image, and so I I would um, just walk in and work the booth, 
And, but so, so because I was working the booth the whole time, I didn't have any sense of any other part. I'd walk around and see the, you know, uh, all the things that are in that, in the sands. And now I don't even know the sands is like some kind of like new media or weird media or something it's else. It's kind of the convention space for the Venetian, but for no, no, there's, there's, a, there's, they, they do something there. Maybe it's CES that they do something there where it's like, like new, new emerging, whatever. But anyway, point was, is the biggest booth in the sands was like, uh, 20 by 20, like everything was 20 by 20 or smaller, or maybe 20 by 30. And the second year I came, someone said, well, you should go over to the South hall. And I was like, where, where's the, South? <laughs> where's the convention center? Like, I don't know where that is. And so I took on a cab and I just asked to go over there. And I just remember walking in and the Sony booth was the first thing you walked into back then. And it was dark like it is now but twice the size that it is now. And it was just this cavernous, massive, and it was the, the Sony booth was the whole size of the sands. <laughs> like, like, like it was just this unbelievable. And I realized that my little world was this tiny little, little speck in the broadcast world. And you know, you'd walk around and there'd be these just massive, um, as, as it was, it was quite a thing. So that's, uh, it's, it, and that's what, that's why I want to make sure that we cover, do wide shots and do things just so you can see like the, the scale of things there. It's, it's, it's amazing. Courtney. Oops. I was looking at the, sorry, I was <laughs> clicked and clicked and clicked. Um, I was looking at the floor plans and I noticed that the West hall, since this is the first time NAB has been using the West hall. I looking at the floor plan on the West hall and the West hall is only about three quarters of the full. This whole, back area over here isn't has no booths in it at all uh so and the south hall was about twice the size of the west hall if not more when you consider both floors of the south hall yeah so i think the show in general is going to have about half the number of exhibit space that it usually and, has and Actually, again the west hall was open last year it was the first an AB. Yeah. Did they have an AB last year yeah, yeah it, i think people fun. were really leery about and, still traveling and things like that in conventions and you know the thing the thing that we're hoping to do is if we put our a good foot forward and we do some good production at NEB our goal is to continue to partner with them they've been by the way uh, i complained weeks ago when we talked about our NEB coverage that NEB didn't give us any time, get, didn't give us the time of day is what i think i said <laughs> and and uh, they definitely after that show definitely um you know pink reached out to us like, how can we help and have been super helpful about, you know, um, you know, I just want to commend them. I mean, they've been, I mean, we have a lot of people with a lot of press passes and I don't know if they've ever given that many press passes to any one organization ever. <laughs> so they, it was, it was a, it was a daunting thing. Uh, and so we just really appreciate all the help. And so our goal is when we look at all that empty space is how do we build something out where we can improve the coverage potentially in every hall where not, you know, so that we can make sure that other people are included. I think that, it, I don't think it depresses the interest in going to NAB. I think just people knowing what it is will have them more interested in coming. And um, and I think it makes it more impactful. So, so it'll, we'll see how it goes. But when I look at that space, I'm looking at like, oh, that could be a cool studio. <laughs> you know, like there, we could fit a cool studio in there. So we'll see. Uh, lots still to come. Let's go to our questions finally. Next question. Next. Uh, next question is from uh, Don Modine in Manchester, Connecticut. And Don asks, can we get an update on the Dante hardware chip shortage issue? 1F Jeff, go for it. I've heard great things, and it's definitely improving. I finally got a guy at Audinate. And uh, I've heard some really good things under NDA on a, quite a few of them now. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely improving, and uh, they're they're – 
we should expect big things coming from him in the future. And it's not about the chip. That's the key. That's all. It's not about the chip. It's about the protocol. Courtney. Yeah. I'm not sure, sure how well it's going to go because I just heard of a, uh, uh, work stoppage at the long longshoreman at the port of long beach in the port of, uh, Los Angeles the last week or so. So I don't know if they've resolved that issue, but that stopped a lot of, uh, freight moving through those ports uh, in the last week or so. So if they can't come up with a contract that everyone's happy with that, we could be in for another shortage with the supply lines backing up, uh, off the ports. Oh dear. Next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, did you ever sit down and plan a path through the halls? And how did that work out? Alex, you know, Brian's been managing most of that. It's a little bit invisible to me <laughs> to what's actually how we're going through it. We have, uh, you know, we're going to be uh, testing Jeff's live view. We have another live view there. Um, there's two hours on Monday. Uh, that's from 10 to noon. And then two hours on Tuesday, which are three to five. And we're going to have a handful of people walking uh, through there. There's a, because we're doing so much VOD, there's a little less pressure. And because we're doing so many other things, there's a little less pressure on it. And we're going to have discussions of those areas. But I think that by the end of Sunday, uh, part of it is we want to go look at it and make some decisions about what that what that is. Um, but uh, I think a lot of decisions will happen over the weekend um, and definitely on Sunday after we've seen what's there. Um, we'll be a little bit responsive to that. Um, we also have a couple folks that have been willing, a couple other influencers that have said that they're interested in jumping on and saying hi. So we may have a couple of them um, giving some their two cents as well. So uh, we'll stay tuned. Jeff Keithley. Uh, definitely I'm trying to make a map, whether it works or not, it's, uh, to be seen every year. Uh, sometimes you just get distracted. Uh, I, I call it the squirrel effect and you're just walking down the aisle and oh, squirrel, let me go look at that for 20 minutes. And then 20 minutes goes by and then you're late for one appointment that you said. And then, uh, that was one reason I never really set appointments before. Uh, this time I have very specific goals that I want to take care of. And most of those are all happening on Sunday. And uh, I'm not looking forward to a lot of back and forth because for whatever reason, I didn't do that part very well. Uh, but I, I do have a, a list, a growing list. And then I use the uh, map pretty, uh, pretty regularly. And the app, if you're going, get the app on your phone. Uh, I found that is very helpful. Also, um, just turn the notifications off because they push you a lot of junk. Alex. Yeah. Typically on, on Sunday, I'll probably get through about half of the show. Um, you know, um, but I'll just wander through there are things I'm looking for, but usually what I'm mostly on Sunday looking for what catches my eye. And so that's why I'm going to catch probably a lot of shorts, um, uh, while I do that, but I'm, I kind of wind through it, uh, relatively briskly. And I do not allow myself to get too caught up in conversations unless it's something I'm really trying to figure out. Um, and, uh, and then on the second day, I finish that off on Monday. Uh, we have so many things going on on, on the second day that we'll see how that goes. And then Tuesday is usually the day I would go back and, and fill things in. Like, what did I, you know, things that I want to go back to or things that I'm, I didn't miss or something that someone told me, oh, you got to go check this out. So those are the things that I kind of, um, that, that's kind of my, the way I pass through it from a personal perspective. And we'll see how the, how the live stream itself goes. Courtney. A reminder to get that show daily and check that for booth numbers for 
uh, because that's updated daily. And a lot of people, there's a lot, lot of uh, moving around that happens as the show opens because people booth, people don't show up or cancel at the last minute. So booth space becomes available and a lot of companies will move to a better position. And so they may not be where they were advertised they will be. So check that the app is a good thing, as Jeff pointed out. Uh, that should have all the updates in it. So Look at the app first, because that's probably the most current, and then the show daily for uh, new booth assignment. And I'd answer to this with the phrase, OMG, yes. Even from my earliest days at NAB, the very first thing I would do, because we had to go pick up badges in, in person, was get the big show magazine, because there's always two or three pages in the interior of that that has all the booth numbers as they exist before the show. And this idea of booth moving is true. But I would take those out. I would literally take uh, a blade and cut them out and fold them into a particular way that would fit either in my pocket if I wasn't carrying something. But back in the days when we used to have to carry a lot of those brochures around, I would put it in the right side, inside, on the side, so I could always reach in there. Then I would figure out who I was interested in seeing in my hotel room the night before, and I would circle their booths on that physical torn out thing. And I would also plan, okay, I've got six to see in the North Hall, so I'm going to do those on day one. And then I've got eight places that I need to go talk to people uh, in the Central Hall, and I would do that on day two. I just found having an a plan of attack that is going to fall apart and you're going to have all these, oh my God, I need to go see that. Or I was having drinks last night with Tim and Tim told me there's this amazing thing in the South Hall downstairs and I have to go see that. And you, you're going to change that. But it, it, for me, if I didn't have a plan, I would get home on the plane and I would go, oh, I missed so many things that I wanted to see. It's just a big physical and emotional thing to go through this many places that you want to see things. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. And Gordon asks, if you're holding off purchases until... Uh, until NAB, how long after NAB is it safe to make purchases? Alex, thoughts? I usually start making plans about a week after NAB. You know, generally NAB is going to, everyone's going to, if they're going to talk about it, anything major, they're usually going to release it then, uh, or they're going to wait for the announcements. And then at that point, you just don't know. So you might as well just start ordering things. <laughs> so, so usually I stop about a month before and and uh, start about a week after. Jeff Keithley? I think that used to be a, a, a bigger thing in, in days past. The the NAB effect, as we used to call it when I was working with New Tech heavily, is like they would make announcements, but if it wasn't shipping, you would just get slammed. And and you got these potential orders, yes, but then it was on the R&D and on the engineering staff to come up with it. Um, they changed their, their ways 12, 15 years ago, it was bad, but 12 years ago, they started making those changes so that never announce a product until that day. And then the first day of NAB. And then, then at that point, it had to be in channel. So it had to be available to buy at that point. And that was a huge change for them. Um, I think they're still in that same world, but there's a lot of still a lot of manufacturers out there that will make announcements and it will not be in the channel. It will not be available you might see it in six months. So you <laughs> might by the next to, NAB. Or, or the next NAB. For the, for the, for the, we, yeah. the rule was we always knew that with, with Black Magic for a long time, that, that whatever, they, whatever they announced at NAB one year, would the only thing you were guaranteed is that it would happen by March of the next year uh, because you knew that, that they didn't want to go to the booth and to explain why they hadn't shipped something because they did that one year. 
And and so after that, it was always like you 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 know that it'll be here within a year, but you don't know when. <laughs> All of those things, Courtney. Yeah, I was just going to point out that same thing. Black magic was always, you know, if you saw it in the booth in 2020, you might be able to get it in 2022, right before 2023's show. And uh, um, and if you're unless you want to be on the bleeding edge of their first generation or first production runs. You want to wait another six months for them to hammer out all the bugs. Yeah, that those were typical things. You didn't want to be a, a an early beta tester for some of these things when they were developing. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, are there any disruptive technologies this year? Who might be their the um who might be at their last NAB due to the disruption? Alex, what do you feel about this? I don't know who would might be the last ones. Um, to, I'm trying to think of companies that I, you know, I'd, I'd be hesitant to say any of them are winding out that this would be the last one that they'd appear on. Um, but but I think that the the disruptive technologies that I think we're going to see are some of the transport stuff. Some of the remote production uh, pieces are going to be really interesting. I think that some of the camera technologies are going to get. Interesting. I don't think they're going to be interesting. You know, I don't know if they're going to be disruptive, um, but. I also do think that we're going to see some really IP, you know, IP video, it's, whether it's NDI or 2110 or Dante or whatever is coming up to speed. And, uh, you know, within the next five years, we'll mostly be, I think, well, definitely within the next 10, <laughs> we'll just be conservative. But in the next five years, a lot of production will be um, going over Ethernet or fiber, but not, not necessarily over the traditional baseband. And so we're, I think we're going to see a lot of tools in those areas. And I, And again, I think that it may splinter a bit more than what it has in the past. Courtney, you had thoughts? I'd love to see S, S by S uh, storage technology from Sony go away. Uh, now with the uh, commoditization of NVMe drives that you can get relatively cheap and relatively small and uh, relatively large capacity, I think uh, the industry is moving toward that flash storage uh, faster and faster. You can't get tape or optical disk storage very much anymore uh, for uh, storage and transport, except for handling with uh, vintage, you know, to go back and archive. To access those archives, you're not going to see a lot of new tape machines from Sony, that's for sure, because nobody's making tape anymore. Uh, so I think that uh, the world is moving to solid state storage, and uh, that's the latest paradigm shift in broadcast, I think, uh, cloud and, and flight. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I remember uh, it, it was about six years ago, seven years ago, when uh, I went to the show and I, I realized I was doing some work for um, for LumaForge. And that was the first time that I'd ever had to set up and work with a video over IP system. Everything was IP as opposed to, you know, it wasn't a coax cable that I had to hook up to get that show going. And for me, it was a inflection point. It was like, Okay, there's everything that I worked in in baseband video through all the course of my years, and now it's all going to be computers, and everything works a little differently. I had to make the mental adjustment. You know, in the past, video was something that was on a coax cable, and when you plugged it into a monitor, it was there. And suddenly, video over IP, suddenly you had to connect the thing, and it had to do a series of handshakes, and it wasn't there now. But when you came back to it 10 minutes later, it was there because it had gone through all those checksums and things necessary to to, to put the signal from point A to point B. 
it was a complete change in my thinking and I had to adapt and I had to get used to the fact that it's not going back to the way it used to be. There are those things that you tend to see if you're keeping your mind open and aware. As, you know, how is it happening? Oh, everything's going to fiber. That's important. I need to understand that change because that's what we're going to be driven into from where we are now. John Preto, you had some thoughts? I would say transcription services, translation services, and possibly some um, stock photography places. Yeah, that's an interesting space right now because there's so much of this uh, mid-journey stuff that's going to be affecting how stock imagery and how people consume imagery. That's There's some big changes coming there, and this will give you a chance to look at some of those issues. Uh, let's go to the next question. Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, if NAB is a people event other than Kiki Stockhammer and the OH crew, who are people? Uh, who are the people you hope to see at NAB? Ah, uh, boy, we could talk about this for weeks. Jeff Keithley is going to start us out. Well, I hope I see Kiki there because I miss her doing those shows with her. Play, it was always the a play blast. booth. Play booth, new tech booth. Yeah, we spent many hours together. Uh, so uh, I, for me, yeah, besides... Uh, you find people that uh, we are together with here and hope to see on Saturday with the get together and the field crews and such. Uh, for me, it's my vendors. Uh, so it, it is getting those uh, those vendors that we have relationships with, Simeon in those relationships a little bit better. And the key part of the vendors, it's not just the sales guys that I talk to all the time. I want to see the engineers. I want to give them the credit where credit's due and hopefully be able to push a few of the items that uh, I want to get done alex yeah there's a ton of creators and other folks that we that have been on the show um you know that those are the usually the things that that i'm looking for obviously old after 25 years they're just a lot of old friends so you know i'll be wandering around the different booths to see the folks that i've worked with over the last 25 years or 20 years and so um you know it's too long of a list to, to list, but it's not someone specific as opposed to everyone that I, I usually see at NAB. That is really, you know, one of the big advantages. And I, I am looking forward to seeing a lot of the OH crew as well. So I think we have the, the largest gathering of, of, of OH uh, ever. So it should be uh, should be a lot of fun. So stay tuned for that too. We'll, we'll take pictures, send lots of things of us with other people um, and, and tie that together. Yeah, for me, uh, more industry friendships came out of going to NAB in my early years than probably any other single thing. That and and being part of the Macintosh community and and finding the people who were interested in doing video editing on that in the early days. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, the, when we were young back 25 years ago, we didn't know anybody, so you'd be sitting at NAB and maybe you'd go to a little mixer or something, you'd be having beer with somebody and, you know, you'd go, oh, they, they really know a good little bit and that's cool and we'd sh share cards and maybe have a contact in between, but we may not see each other until the next NAB. But three or four NABs after that um, – some of those people that were just your friends from NAB start moving up in the industry. And the next thing you know, you turn around and, oh, they're doing really well in this large company. And part of the reason that I have in my Rolodex, some people who are senior vice presidents and company owners of things now, those are relationships that formed for me in those early days in accidental meetings, just by being there, just by going to events. Um, I remember... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see people and you just keep seeing it. And that's an interesting person. I haven't had time to talk to them. I haven't had time to talk to them. And then decades later, you have, or a decade later, you find yourself in that moment. I've seen you at NAB forever. What do you do? And you form an instant friendship because you have the same 
you know, you're in the same industry, you're working in kind of maybe the same area of it, or it may be a different area, which is even better, I think, because it expands you out of what you know how to do. And you get into a pond where somebody else knows how to do something that's complementary but different. And now if you've got them, if you've formed this little relationship and you've got them in your Rolodex, suddenly, boy, am I dating myself by saying Rolodex, you've got them in your uh, address book or digitally in your system or your Facebook friends or, or you're on Discord with them, whatever it is in whatever era, all of a sudden you're forming that community and boy, I can't tell you the number of times it's gotten me out of trouble. I'm on a deadline. I have to know something. And I'm going, I don't know how this works. But the guy I met at NAB 10 years ago works in that space. And I know he knows this. And I can make a call to him or get an email to him. And he'll instantly come back and say, you should do this and this and this. And it solves the problem. And it just makes your life so much easier. All right, we've gotten to the top of the hour. Essentially, it's time for us to say goodbye. I hope you guys are all as excited about NAB as I am. Uh, we're going to do the best we can to bring you the most interesting coverage. As Alex has said, a lot of what we're going to do is experimental. So we're not trying to do the the fanciest, most perfect piece of production here. What we're trying to do is expand what is possible in coverage of a trade show in this modern era. I think Alex has put together a brilliant design for looking at not just what we need to do this year, but the idea of these shorts and things like that, maybe things for the future. They're going to form the backbone of a repository so that when the show is over, you have not just what you saw those three days, but a place where you can go and get valuable, vetted, smartly curated information about what was at the trade show for the people all over the world who weren't able to go there. Um, we have a few people, uh, I guess, let's take a look at what's happening coming up. And I didn't pull my... Well, the big thing coming up tomorrow is, is of course, NAB is all next next week. Oh, yeah. uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, Andy Carluccio from, uh, from Zoom will be joining us. Uh, they're going to uh, have some announcements and he's going to be talking about those. And so we should, tomorrow will be a good day to be here. That's going to be huge. <laughs> That's all I got to say. So, so, so I, I don't know all the things that he's going to announce, but when usually when Zoom is willing to come on and talk about new announcements, it's usually a, a, a worthwhile day. Yeah, and not that Zoom is hours. important yeah. in the idea of this like virtual present thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so <laughs> well, stay tuned for anybody. that, and of course, um, let us know the things. That, one of the things that's really important for next week is to is to also let us know when you see announcements, when you see things, is um, you know in Discord. Let us know. Well, we should probably put in an NAB like some chant i know we, we try not to add any more channels to discord but but some kind of nab channel that that lets us um you know that i don't know if there's and the team may have already thought of this but something where people can just throw in hey this is cool we should go take a look at that kind of thing um you know so that everybody even people not there can can tell us what they're they want to see um so definitely um post that up there and if you're watching the show for the first time, remember there's a lot of things you can do to interact with everybody on Office Hours. In fact, the volunteer orientation with Alex, is he's now doing it the first Saturday of every month. So if you show up, you can. Um, that's a good way to explore becoming more involved in Office Hours. Our thanks go out to our amazing panelist experts, our producers, you the viewers who drive the show with your questions and your votes, our amazing behind-the-scenes crew. Please watch the credits as they roll now as we finish up today's show. It is truly a global operation. This is spread around the world, and all of the people whose names you see on this show are the ones who are making this happen every day. Thank you for being here today. After Hours is always open for your questions 24-7. We will be back tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Pick up a
it a very heavy one? A Rosie 10 pin to XLR. Finally found one, borrowing one from somebody. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, it was made of unattainable. 